Hi, this is Dr. J.P. Sanchez, president for Building Next Generation of Academic Physicians, as well as editor for a new book entitled Succeeding Academic Medicine, A Roadmap for Diverse Medical Students and Residents. I'm excited um, that for today's podcast taping, we have Dr. Ed Callahan from UC Davis. Um, as you know, we've decided to do this podcast to introduce you to the co-authors of each of the chapters so that they can inspire you to stay on track and pursue um, an academic medicine career. So thank you, Dr. Callahan, for joining us today. Oh, that's my pleasure, JP. I very much appreciate all the things that Bingap is doing. So this is a real pleasure just to get the chance to talk with you a bit. Excellent. And to uh, talk with your, uh, your audience. Excellent, thank you. So um, as you know, we've, um, the board, um, and, and you, you've served on our board right from the beginning, um, we decided to do this podcast series um, to let our diverse listeners know that they, they can succeed in academia. Can you share a little bit about your own background and your own identity? I'd be happy to. So my, my primary identity is that I'm a gay white male. Um, I'm also first generation college, which I think figures in, and, and I think it's something that is oftentimes ignored. But uh, as a gay white male, I know that being gay is offset incredibly in terms of the privilege that I had by having, by identifying as white and by identifying as male. So the, uh, the, I don't see myself as having experienced a tremendous amount of lack of opportunity, but I also think that there was a way in which that, that influenced my thinking. Um, and that also ties into being first-generation college. As a kid, I was uh, taught, and my siblings and I were always taught, that kids were to be seen and not to be heard. So with four siblings, anytime we visited people, it was expected that we would refuse any water or milk or anything else, and that we would refuse any treats that people might offer us. Uh, and that really taught us kind of what our role was. And when I got to college, I thought that my role was to be to learn from these professors. But I never spoke to a professor outside of class through the four years of college, which was such a lack of lack of use of this incredible opportunity. You pay your tuition, you have the right to have people develop mentoring relationships with you. Not just to be, not just to be there to take the test. So, uh, and pro probably that tied in with growing up in the era I grew up in, and seeing myself as second class because I was gay, and uh, feeling that that I could never be a leader in anything that I did because of that deficit. So, there are things that we tell ourselves because of our identities that really cut us short in terms of taking advantage of the opportunities that exist. So that's why I think it's important to be have, that this book is coming out uh, because the theme of I'm not good enough has been put on too many people that it, doesn't, it should never apply to. We all have to 
recognize that we're capable of doing much more than we see initially, and that we have a responsibility to go and grow into that role that we see as possible instead of staying um, and being underutilized. Excellent. Thank, thank you for sharing that. Um, can you also share a little bit about your educational journey, where you went to college and um, the doctoral program you decided to pursue after? Sure. I did my undergraduate work in Boston, in Boston at Boston College. Uh, coming out of high school, the uh, nuns told us that we couldn't apply to Harvard or Yale because neither of those places accepted any Catholics. <laughs> so uh, they, they felt that there was this big stigma about being Catholic that I don't think the admissions offices at either of those institutions had on their books. Yeah. But uh, that was fine. I went to a good, solid undergraduate school. And then uh, I was graduating from college at the time that the Vietnam War was heating up. And I fully expected to be, uh, to be drafted and, and go into the armed services. Uh, but it, uh, in a strange way, things went a little bit differently. At the time I graduated uh, from college, I had applied to one graduate program. I had applied for one job, and I had applied to uh, be admitted to the Air Force. The Air Force and my physical discovered a problem with my vision I never was aware I had, so I ended up uh, being 1Y and not draftable. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, uh, the single graduate school I pro applied to was the University of Vermont. And they accepted me, and uh, that was a wonderful experience, and it really opened the door to the rest of my career. So uh, I went into psychology, but I've always had a fascination with medicine. And over the 40 years that I've worked, at its uh, medicine has been really core to that. Excellent, excellent. And so was it your postdoc work that placed you in a medical school? Can you share a little bit about um, how you ended up um, eventually becoming um, a chancellor at UC Davis in terms of titles and positions? Uh, absolutely. So it all uh, happened kind of when I wasn't paying attention. Uh, but I, when I finished graduate work, uh, I was, at, that was at a time that almost no one did postdocs, and I uh, applied for positions around the country in England and uh, ended up in, in California with a chance to do research work as a research psychologist out of UCLA, working uh, part-time with a hospital and doing some work about uh, uh, of some work around medicine. So I wrote my first funded grant while I was at UCLA, and uh, I was funded to do a study comparing uh, heroin addiction treatment using naltrexone, a narcotic antagonist, and behavior therapy, and seeing which one was effective. What was fascinating thing that we found was that we were very effective in working with naltrexone, but we were the only uh, the only naltrexone funded 
program funded that was successful. Mm -hmm. So the 15 programs funded around the country, ours worked and we had very good outcomes. So of course, NIDA decided that naltrexone doesn't work. So I I suddenly found myself needing to look for another position and I went into academic medicine uh, by the back door by going to a department of psychology and doing work with OBGYN. Great, great. And then eventually um, you, you reached the highest tiers, you became full professor and um, vice chancellor of personnel, no? What, what was your um, uh, ultimate position within the UC Davis system? Well, I, I, when I went to UC Davis, I uh, went into the Department of Family Medicine. As a member of that faculty, I started working in the, in the promotions process and became a member of what's called CAP, the Committee on Academic Personnel, that goes across the entire school, uh, the entire college of uh, University of California, Davis. And uh, I ended up moving on to oversee faculty. And uh, the, my formal title became Associate Vice Chancellor for Academic, Medi- academic uh, Personnel. So that meant that basically I oversaw hiring faculty and I oversaw promotions and I oversaw the evaluations of the performance of the uh, chairs, the deans, uh, and everyone else. So it was a really, it was really a position I didn't ever particularly think I was going to uh, be in. But when I got there, it became really clear to me that we didn't have the faculty that we needed if we were ever going to be able to reduce health disparities. We had faculty that looked far too much like me, uh, too many older white males, and not enough people that looked like the patients that we were treating. So if we're ever going to overcome health disparities, we need to have a very different faculty teaching people and bringing together students from very diverse backgrounds who can work effectively to provide care to all communities, not just to the wealthiest communities, not just to uh, the people that have the advantages. So that's critical. And we have incredibly talented people from diverse backgrounds who unfortunately have not been brought into medical school at the same rates as other people. And what happens too often is that people get uh, higher test scores, the more academic advantage you have in the process of growing up. So we really have this unmined potential of people who are really bright and will make incredible physicians that don't necessarily get in there. It's a harder job for people to get into, into medical school and then get onto faculty and then to stay there. Because once you get on faculty, if you look around and you don't find other people who look like you and who understand you, it makes it harder to stay in there and want to succeed 
when you could just leave and go into a, a private practice medical job and make more money. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing that. I, I wanted the listeners to have a good appreciation of who you are, your trajectory and your experiences. So they would even be more excited about the, the, um, the chapter you authored entitled Introduction um, to the um, Academic Appointment and Promotion Processes. So, you know, knowing everything you've done and working with faculty and senior leadership, the chapter give, will give them a good appreciation of the academic medicine workforce. But before we give them one or two nuggets from your chapter, um, why, you know, why did you decide to co-author this chapter? I thought it was an important uh, chapter to get out there because I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what happens in the promotion process. And uh, I think traditionally, in many departments, you needed your chair's permission to be able to, to go forward and be considered for promotion. So if, if you weren't one of the in guys or in women in the department, you might not get, you might get overlooked. And that was really problematic. What I think is critical is that everybody recognize what it takes to get promoted within their system and then to work on that right from the, the beginning. You know, when we have done workshops with students, people who are in medical school, people who are in residency, people, even people who are undergraduates and wanting to go on that route, it's always clear that people have misconceptions of what it takes to succeed in, in uh, medicine and that people don't necessarily recognize that they have the skills to be effective and to join faculty and to succeed as faculty members. So I think that's where the book is really critical because if it inspires some people to recognize that they can have a successful career as a faculty member, we can start to change medicine in the way that it has to change if we're ever gonna give better care to the patients in this country. Great. So similar, um, there's many faculty and leaders who have had great experiences such as you and struggle with writing, whether it's writing uh, a journal article or a book chapter. Um, what did you find most difficult about contributing to this chapter, uh, authoring this chapter, and how did you overcome that challenge? Uh, so I think the, the biggest challenge with writing this chapter is making everything make sense to a reader who doesn't have the background. It's so easy to get caught up in the mechanics of promotion and tenure and the detail about that, that you forget that really what people want to know is, is this something I can do? And I think when you break down what it is that people start paying attention to to build their curriculum vita, you really, people get an idea what they can do day to day, what they're, what things they do in terms of becoming a leader in medical school where you're doing work with uh, student run clinics, where you're helping organize things, where you're figuring out what ways you can meet the needs of the, the 
uh, medical student community, what ways you're meeting the needs of the patient community, and find ways that you can document service and you can do research on service. A lot of people don't recognize that writing is just very simply straightforward communication, clear communication. And if you're practicing that throughout the time that you're going through training in medicine, you can use that to document your work and to have an impact on other people. And we're all in the process of trying to influence other people. You work with a group of students, you wanna help the other students uh, who are following you develop their, recognize their own skills, develop those skills and be successful in uh, doing the work that you start. So if you're only gonna be at medical school for four years, that means you've gotta be thinking right from the beginning, how are you gonna convince the class behind you to pick up some of the things that you and your colleagues are doing and make them even better? What can you do to ensure that what you're doing during your four years doesn't just fade away like chalk on a, on a chalkboard and just get erased? You can think about ways that you can have an impact and keep that impact going. And I think that's really critical because a lot of what we're trying to do in medicine is to create an atmosphere of diversity and inclusion, which means not only are the different people invited to the dance, but there's always inclusion, that everyone is invited to dance and that the experiences, we watch up for each other. You, you cannot go through a medical environment without seeing some of your fellow trainees treated as less than, whether that's by patients, by residents, by attendings. And you have to be aware that that's going on, whether that's just to say to your colleague that you saw what happened and it was wrong, that as a woman, she should not have been treated like that, as a, uh, as a person of color, that that was never acceptable, that whatever the issue is, that we all have the responsibility to protect one another and make sure that we give everybody a very fair shake and that we have, that we create a community that is inclusive. That's a lot of work, but it's where you get your greatest joy in working. Great, great. So you, you started to share some of, some of the nuggets that come up in your chapter um, to further inspire and excite people to pick up um, the book and read this particular chapter and participate in the future webinar. Can you share um, one more nugget from your um, book chapter? Sure. That the, one of the things that people have thought happens is that that you get in, um, that you have to convince a group of people that don't understand you, that wouldn't recognize you, that couldn't appreciate what you're doing. Uh, that that's the audience you have to convince that you belong being promoted, that you should become an associate professor, that you should be a 
become a full professor, that you should become a department chair or dean. The reality is that you can help people understand who you are and what you're doing. You're going to be far more successful if, as you start as a, a faculty member, or even as you're starting as a uh, before you formally join the faculty, where you you have your idea about where you want to go and what you want to accomplish, that you are able to do that in a systematic way. That you keep that you are able to communicate to anybody what it is that you're doing, what your goals are, and how you're going to know that you're successful accomplishing those goals. If you're able to put your academic career into that context so that you can write clearly to a committee that doesn't know you personally, but knows who you are from my, what you're hearing, uh, you want to, you want those people uh, to understand your goals, what your passion is, why you're doing what you're doing. If you're able to communicate that clearly, then you're far more likely to be successful in being promoted and you're going to feel good about yourself. You can have a huge impact by mentoring, by doing quality service, by being a leader in whatever form it takes within your department, within your school. There are many, many paths, and you can find the one that fits you best. And if you communicate clearly about what you're trying to do and what you, how you're trying to do it, you're going to be very successful. Well, excellent. Thank you. Well, let, let me cap us off by saying um, thank you for um, all of your service to Bingap as one of the founding board members, um, as well as being a, a phenomenal mentor and champion for me and, and many other generations of trainees and faculty. Um, our listeners should be aware that we'll be hosting a webinar um, that also features you where, you, where they can ask you more um, directed questions. So thank you again for everything. And JP, thank you for the leadership you've given to Bingap and to the mentor that you are to so many students and so many junior faculty who are growing up under you.